Hey, Lulu here. Whether we are romping through science, music, politics, technology, or feelings, we seek to leave you seeing the world anew. Radiolab adventures right on the edge of what we think we know, wherever you get podcasts. This is The Takeaway. I'm Melissa Harris-Perry. On January 3rd, Keenan Anderson returned to the familiarity of L.A. for what was supposed to be a short visit. He looked forward to embarking on a new professional career. The California native was on the cusp of a new role as a high school English teacher in Washington, D.C. Instead, Keenan was killed by officers of the Los Angeles Police Department. Keenan's uncle remembers him as fearless in the face of challenge and adversity. But even this fearless young man could not endure being shocked six times in 42 seconds by officers of the LAPD. His cries of help me, please, were ignored. Keenan's friend, Timothy Bundy, spoke at a vigil in his honor. He lost both of his parents at a young age. So he didn't grow up with no mother and didn't grow up with no father. He lost them when he was like uh, eight, seven, eight years old. Now his son is about to grow up with no dad. He used to always tell me, I'm going to be there for my kids. My, my, son's gonna, my son's gonna have a father, I'm gonna be there. And he wanted that for his son, he wanted the best one. But now he can't have that because the police took that away from him. He was 31 years old, about to turn 32 in May. They taking too many guys, man. Keenan Anderson joins the ever-growing list of black people killed by police, a list that continues to scribble down black names like a modern-day book of the dead. On January 17th in Raleigh, North Carolina, another black man, Daryl Williams, was tased and killed by police in the parking lot of a local convenience store. His friends spoke out in the aftermath. He was such a great character of life. He had such a good spirit. Anything that happened on this occasion, it could have been dealt with so calmly. Versus the violence. From the own people who are supposed to protect and serve you. Dr. Kimberly McTarian, who founded the organization Save Our Sons with the hopes of eliminating structural racism in police departments, had this to say following Daryl's death. If you don't run, you might be dead. And you don't get a chance to second chance that. And uh, this is happening more frequently than not. The old lynching style is no longer a rope in a tree, but a taser and a knee. Axon Enterprises, the company that supplies tasers to police departments, markets the weapons as a less lethal alternative to firearms. Atlantic Public Media reports that at least 400,000 police officers carry tasers along with their firearms. My name is Alex Vitale. I'm professor of sociology at Brooklyn College and author of The End of Policing. Let's start with a little bit of history. When did tasers become sort of a standard part of law enforcement um, uniforms and gear? Well, probably about 20 years ago. They, They existed before that. But there was a kind of gradual rolling out of their adoption across the country. And certainly today, they are standard procedure in in a huge percentage of police departments nationally. 
let me just ask you to clarify just for a moment. Taser is both the name of a thing and, and the name of the company. Is that right? So Taser was the company that originally patented the design for a conductive energy transfer weapon. Other companies have developed analogous technologies and marketed under different names, but they all work in essentially the same way, which is that they involve direct contact with the skin and the discharge of a very high electrical charge that's intended to immobilize someone. What was the thinking behind the introduction of the tasers? Were they meant to provide um, a kind of non-lethal alternative? Were they thought of at the time as sort of cutting-edge technology? They they were considered cutting-edge technology, and they were they were part of a, a kind of a somewhat long tradition of trying to use technology to reduce the levels of police violence. And and the way the tasers were marketed was as an alternative to handguns. Uh, the, the marketer saying, you know, let's put the bullet out of business. And this the thinking was that this would save a lot of lives in the process by giving police officers a tool other than handguns that they could utilize in those most extreme circumstances when they felt deadly levels of force might be necessary. Listen, I I get that. Like that reasoning makes sense to me. And it feels like it fits within a long tradition of attempting to use technology in ways to monitor policing and ensure that it is uh, encouraging public safety rather than allowing police violence. I'm thinking even here of things like body cams and dash cams, right? Cutting edge technology meant to be used in that way. Is that the right way to be thinking about these? Well, it, the the results haven't really panned out the way we would hope. And often what we see is that this new technology ends up just representing a, an extension of police power, of police surveillance, and hasn't really delivered on the accountability or in the reduction in police violence. Why? If, if you can reach for a taser instead of reaching for a handgun, why why do you think we haven't seen this reduction in violence? Well, it turns out that the tasers are not really being used exclusively in situations where a handgun would have been used. That, in fact, the vast majority of taser deployments are in situations where a handgun use would be out of policy and possibly unlawful. Instead, what we're seeing is that it's being used as an alternative to having officers actually put their hands on people or perhaps use a nightstick or pepper spray. So in that sense, it, it, it's actually creating a new increased level of police force rather than a reduction in police violence. We'll be back with Alex Vitale of Brooklyn College with more on the deadliness of police tasers right after this. This week on the New Yorker Radio Hour, Jerry Seinfeld on making a life in comedy. This is a writer's game. If you can write, you succeed. If you can't, you will not make it. Any comedian can be funny on stage, but the bullets are the writing. Jerry Seinfeld on his film Unfrosted and more. That's the New Yorker Radio Hour from WNYC Studios. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.
back now and talking about tasers with Alex Vitelli of Brooklyn College. Okay, I want you to walk me through these two different kinds of scenarios so that I can understand kind of clearly what you mean here. So walk me through first, what would be a scenario where an officer, um, and this is like as a matter of training, right, would would have um, typically been told, okay, this is a scenario where it would be appropriate to use a taser as an alternative to using the handgun. So let's imagine that you uh, are responding to a call and you're confronted with someone who is armed with a knife and makes a move towards uh, stabbing either the officer or uh, someone else in the vicinity. And the officer feels that they have the, the time, they're close enough to deploy the taser instead of a handgun to neutralize that suspect. And then when is it being used instead when you make this point about um, sort of rather than having direct contact, what, what would those circumstances look like? Well, look, let's recall what happened in the Rodney King beating in the 1990s when tasers were already in, in some departments, which is someone who was non-cooperative with the police, who was perceived to be either resisting arrest or perhaps attempting to flee or otherwise not responding to police commands. And that's a situation where deadly force is not warranted. But this tends to be the situation where we see tasers deployed the most often. If they're instead being used in circumstances where lethal force wouldn't typically be used, then are tasers more lethal? So the the taser manufacturers started off marketing their pro, their product as non-lethal technology. And th- this was based on really faulty research that they funded and then used to market their product. And it turns out from very early on it was clear that some of these taser deployments were causing people to die. And now it's very well documented and taser has been forced to pay out damages and then now has transferred that liability to police departments by issuing a number of warnings to them about, in fact, the lethality of their product. So you're absolutely right. If we're seeing the use of potentially lethal tasers on top of the already high-level usages of handguns, we may actually be seeing an increase in police lethality. I'm also wondering about the um, accidental discharge of the service weapon um, when an officer says they were reaching for the taser. So I- I'm thinking here, just to say his name, um, Oscar Grant, who was killed, shot um, by an, an officer in Oakland, um, California. I think it, it, he was actually a, a metro officer, um, a transportation officer, as opposed to a an Oakland police officer, because the officer understood himself, and this is at least how it came out in court, he understood himself to be reaching for the taser, thinking he was going to use a non-lethal alternative made an error and, in fact, reached instead for his service weapon. Well, that's certainly not the only case where that defense has been used by an officer who claimed they they made that kind of mistake. Part of the difficulty in like really precisely assessing all this is the fact that the majority of police departments don't provide clear information about their use of force by officers. 
And so it makes it really difficult for researchers to have a clear sense of just how often these kinds of usages are taking place. Since we're talking a little bit about the kinds of defenses that get used in um, in these cases, can you tell me about excited delirium, which often comes up to explain the deaths of civilians at the hands of police? Yeah, so this is a concept that had kind of bounced around a little bit over a number of years, but essentially got picked up by the taser company to use as a kind of explanation for some of these early deaths that were associated with taser use. And the idea here is that, you know, there were anecdotal emergency room observations and observations by police of people who may have been uh, under the influence of some kind of drug and who were resistant or combative in ways that they didn't normally see. And this, you know, gained traction as a convenient way to explain the necessity for certain high levels of police violence. The scientific and medical communities have never accepted the validity of this uh, explanation This is not uh, uh, understood as a legitimate medical condition and really has been used as part of a marketing and legal defense strategy uh, with, with no real scientific basis. If tasers were meant to be an alternative, what are the alternatives to tasers? So we need to look at whether or not in the first place, police are actually the right people to be responding to some of these calls in the first place. So I think part of it is rethinking our use of officers armed with handguns and tasers in situations where they're not needed. And also, you know, we've heard all this discourse about de-escalation of police encounters, and we just haven't seen that play out in very meaningful ways. So we either need to rethink this training or uh, or rethink whether or not really we should be arming police officers with tasers in the first place. Alex Vitali is professor of sociology at Brooklyn College and author of The End of Policing. Alex, again, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. <laughs>